Hey, y'all. So normally this would be the part of the podcast episode where Jay would tell me about something like that kid with the surfboard powers and his lifeguard sister whose superhero name was literally Lifeguard, and I'd yell, What? But this month we're doing something a little different. Recently, America has seen an unprecedented wave of legislation targeting trans youth, including Florida's HB 1557, which cuts queer and trans kids off from education, resources, and support with potentially deadly consequences. As... Eight years into this, we've got a fair lot of frame of reference when it comes to fighting for a world that hates and fears you. We're pushing back using our own superpower, a fantastic, engaged, caring community. So throughout April, we're raising money for Equality Florida, matching your donations and offering some pretty rad rewards, physical and virtual. So many hats. (laughs) Right? And holy crap, you have turned out, listeners. As of April 6th, when we're recording this episode, we have raised, including matching, nearly $20,000. Hopefully by the time it airs, we'll have taken that even further. So, for more information, and to find out how to participate, check out explainthexmen.com slash equality. Meanwhile, on to the show. I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 369 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some time between crossovers. That's right, Onslaught is done, and the characters are still talking about it, and Operation Zero Tolerance is on its way, and the characters are starting to talk about it. But... What we actually get as a result of that are a handful of pretty quiet issues, two of which we'll be looking at today, alongside one slightly less quiet annual. (laughs) There's a robot. But before we get to any of that, perhaps we should check in with what's happened previously on X-Men. After accidentally merging his own dark side with a psychic hate goblin from Magneto's brain and turning into the supervillainous onslaught, Professor X has turned himself in to the authorities. The X-Men, however, remain at the X-Mansion. So, it's been a while. Who's actually on the team these days? Well, four of the five original members are still around, those being Cyclops, Phoenix, which is to say Jean Grey, Beast, and Iceman. As our second-generation recruits, Storm and Wolverine, but not Wolverine's nose or sleeves, since he's been recently devolving into a more animalistic form. Rounding out the team are future cop Bishop and former New Mutant and X-Force member Cannonball. And Joseph, a de-aged and de-memoried Magneto, trying to atone for the sins of his older past self that he can't remember. So he's actually a clone, but nobody knows that at this point, so we're not going to worry about it. Technically, Rogue and Gambit are also on the team, but they're not around for these issues. They're, you know, off doing the stuff they do. Very safe sex, I guess. I was thinking bowling. I guess that's pretty safe. Unless you hit somebody with a bowling ball. As far as former X-Men go, Cyclops' brother Havoc left the government-sponsored Mutant Team X-Factor after a long stint as its leader. In order to do what he does best, get brainwashed by a villain. These days, he's leading a new brotherhood of evil mutants. Speaking of family members of prominent mutants who are currently being jerks, Raiden Creed, the anti-mutant bigot who's secretly the son of Mystique and Sabretooth, yeah, he's running for president of the United States on a campaign of hate. Iceman and Cannonball are both working undercover with his campaign, under truly, truly terrible aliases. 
and J. Jonah Jameson, everyone's favorite curmudgeonly journalist and professional yelling man, has sworn to uncover Creed's dark secrets. Along with Creed's parentage, another of his dark secrets is his association with Bastion, the ruthless leader of Operation Zero Tolerance, an international anti-mutant conspiracy that makes the Friends of Humanity look like actual friends. This guy, yeah, he's going to be a problem. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 339, Fight and Flight. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Adam Kubert and Cedric Nocon, inked by Jesse Delperdang and Scott Hanna, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And I really like its cover. It's, it's Havoc and Cyclops fighting, and it's a kind of great example of how much narrative traction you can get just from turning an image upside down. Right, because they're sort of falling through the sky as they fight, just like they will be later in the issue. Yeah, and that sense of, of, of just lack of bearings is very much there. So Spider-Man opens the issue for us. He shows up at the X-Mansion to warn the X-Men that J. Jonah Jameson is digging up dirt on Graydon Creed. Why this is a warning and not just a high-five moment, I'm not entirely sure. I think the warning is about just how dangerous Creed is becoming. I don't think it's news to the X-Men, but I still appreciate Spider-Man showing up to tell them. But this is a different Spider-Man than many of us are familiar with, or possibly the same Spider-Man that we were familiar with for a while, but then not after that, because we're still in the middle of the Clone Saga. Oh, so this is Ben Riley, not Peter Parker. I believe this is Ben Riley, yeah. And I think that explains why he doesn't recognize Bishop and mostly remembers the Silver Age X-Men. Do you remember that Silver Age story, Jay, where Spider-Man and the X-Men got into a tussle because the X-Men got a warning about a spider and figured it was Spider-Man, but actually it was a robot spider? I do. I remember it vividly. Yeah. So it's Adam Kubert that does this issue, and I always confuse my A. Kubert brothers. I believe Adam is the one that's done a lot of Wolverine and is doing this, and his Spider-Man is great. He's so dynamic and contortionisty, kind of like the way he can be under Todd McFarlane's art, but like a slightly different angle of that, sort of less alien, less insectoid, and more just a person who is very flexible and also very weird, and I love it. Spider-Man is definitely both of those things. Speaking of Graydon Creed, though, Mystique is apparently spending her days at X-Factor fantasizing about assassinating him, which is entirely fair. I mean, I kind of fantasize about assassinating Graydon Creed. Uh, I really appreciate, though, that the core X-Books are checking in with some important X-Factor stuff that is very much going to be related. It often seems like the second tier of X-Men books, especially X-Factor and Excalibur, say— kind of get forgotten by the main ones. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really nice seeing them actually connect up here, which they will much, much more directly shortly. Now, Mystique isn't the only one who's been thinking about Creed. The X-Men have also gone so far as to plant two of their own in his staff. These are uh, Bobby Drake and Sam Guthrie, who are respectively going by Drake Roberts and Samson Guthrie, but with a Y. God damn it, guys. Actually, can we take a second and just talk about how deeply terrible the X-Men are at Spycraft, because their idea of shadowing J. Jonah Jameson is to seat Beast immediately behind him on a flight. Hey, it can be really hard to get the seat you want on an airplane. Maybe that was the only one that had the legroom Beast would need, but wasn't one of those real expensive seats, like nearer to the front of the aircraft so you can get off sooner. I mean, the X-Men aren't made of money. Like, Uncle Pennybags got arrested. 
Okay, Cyclops is also on the flight. Um, he clandestinely, sort of as backup, further back, and possibly wearing a crop top. It changes length length over the course of the issue. But, you know, why not just do that? Oh, and not only that, but Storm and Joseph are trailing the flight in the camouflaged Blackbird. Like, they're shadowing J. Jonah Jameson so hard that there is significantly more shadow than man at this point. <laughs> I'm kind of reminded of the sneaking song from the Pirates of Penzance, or the equivalent from... Uh, Harvard Lampoon's Board of the Rings, where instead of uh, having the various rangers, it's the green toupees. We are stealthy green toupees, skulking nights and sleeping days. They sing that as they skulk around. Okay. So I don't want to just talk about JJJ's shadows. I want to talk about his smoke, because he is smoking a cigar on this flight. And that was surprising like you totally can't do that these days but i looked it up and so apparently it was way back in 88 when u.s-based airlines said you couldn't smoke on domestic flights of less than two hours and that became flights of less than six hours in 1990 so you had a little more leeway there but as of 2000 all domestic and international flights banned smoking so this was in what 96 97 we're right on the border so i guess this would have been the time when you couldn't really uh smoke on most domestic flights but you could smoke on any international flights so now you know and i'm sorry beast and everybody around jjj because i bet those cigars smell terrible i bet he kept smoking on flights He probably did, and when people told him that was, like, against federal law, he would just berate them until they left. He would yell, I'm an editor, goddammit! (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Oh, JJJ, you're the best at being the worst. So you mentioned that this is an international flight, and specifically, JJJ is on his way to London to meet a reporter who's dug up some critical dirt on Creed, which is going to turn out to be the secret of Creed's parentage. Unfortunately, that reporter will be murdered by Bastion before... Jonah shows up for their rendezvous. It is unfortunate. What's also unfortunate is every time we identify Graydon Creed by his last name, I just think of the 90s band Creed that was like super big, even though all their songs basically sounded the same. They didn't run for president. That I know of. If they did, they definitely didn't succeed. Yeah, no, the the band's actually rabidly anti-mutant. It's just one of the lesser known details about them. They covered it all in their behind the music. Oh, damn. They, They seemed pretty nice. That's a shame. No, no. Right in bed with the Sentinels. God damn it, Creed. Well, I'm glad I never bought any of your albums, because they all sounded the same. And also because you're apparently anti-mutant bigots. Speaking of mutants who actually are dangerous, though, things take a turn here. That's right. Um, J. Jonah Jameson is going to be late to the rendezvous, letting his reporter get killed by Bastion, because of the Brotherhood of Mutants led by Havoc. And they're going to attack the plane... And I'm so excited about this, because Cyclops is also on that plane, and if there's one thing I love, it's Summer's Drama. Summer's Drama in planes, even, which is its own extra level. But here's the thing. First, before that happens, if there are two things I love, it's Summer's Drama and X-Men trying to explain their own ludicrous continuity. Like, now you know how it feels, so they're fictional characters, that'll show you. And, um, on, on the Blackbird... Joseph makes the mistake of asking what Cable's deal is. And after some long explanation from Storm, manages to give an aghast recap. So even though Cable is clearly older than Cyclops, he is actually the son of Scott and a cloned gene. 
was infected with a virus by Apocalypse and transported into the future by a sisterhood of something called the Ascani, only to later be raised by Scott and the real Gene, who were in different bodies at the time, who eventually had to leave him there, which forced him into the role of the Ascani son, and later Cable, who ultimately came back in time to save the world from Apocalypse, who was actually the person who started it all. Is... is that all of it? Except for the part about Cable's sister. Sister? Or of a half-sister, from his father's possible future reality. Listeners, this is what Jay and I refer to as a what trigger. Yeah. So anyway, the Brotherhood attacks. Havoc is there, and there's also a large wrinkly telepath. Who is this guy? Uh, this is somebody from the evil Morlock group Gene Nation. His name is Ever. We've seen him, like, once. But let's talk a little bit about Havoc and what he's up to. Like, we alluded to the fact that he's been brainwashed and he's leading a villain team. Essentially, he went off on his own into a clear trap back in the pages of X-Factor. Dark Beast yoinked him, overwrote his mind again, while convincing him that no, 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 his mind was not overridden. He's totally just doing this stuff because he wants to. So now he's leading yet another incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, albeit a not particularly memorable one. They're just calling themselves the Brotherhood of Mutants, I think. I mean, that's probably for the best. You remember that one time Toad tried to explain why they used the word evil and it was not very convincing? You know, I saw a conversation about this online and someone made the point, like, yeah, but would you not totally join a group called the Fellowship of Evil Queers? And I would. That's the thing. Like, I would be there in a second. Oh, you know, that that's a good point. That sounds kind of awesome. Right? Huh. Okay. Well, as we have learned, Havoc has very bad judgment, and so perhaps this is just yet another way, taking out the word evil. God, he really does. Um, now, specifically, the Brotherhood is here because they are angry that Jameson is going after Creed when they want to be the ones to take Creed out. That, that seems like a bit of an overreaction, to, like, rip the top off an airplane to yell that. Ripping the top off an airplane is a bit of an overreaction to almost anything. I mean, I guess if the top of an airplane is about to explode, then you can rip it off, but, uh, that's pretty rare. Well, maybe not in the Marvel Universe. It's still pretty extreme. True, true. So Cyclops and Havoc fight, and then they jump out of the plane, and Cyclops destroys Havoc's anti-gravity generator, which Havoc happens to have, uh, so that they can once again bond while falling out of a plane. I love the way this works, the way Scott figures this out. Havoc's like, how do you know? And Scott's like, well, uh, that didn't used to be on your costume, so I just zapped the new part, figuring that was why you could suddenly fly. And he's totally right. But anyway, and there is a great conversation, because Havoc is very aware of the symbolism of the two of them having a conflict while falling out of a plane. It's what it's always been about, Scott. It's about control. From the moment our mother tossed us out of that plane... Both you and I, our lives have been in freefall. I'm through with no longer being in control of my powers, my own mind. I refuse to be hunted by one sentinel after the next. I can think of eight different incidents when my thoughts have been controlled by one mutant lunatic or another. Since the moment I was first dragged into the X-Men. Never again, Cyclops. From this moment on, I am in control. Oh, man. On the one hand, I feel for Alex so hard right now, but on the other hand, he is kind of like that clearly very drunk guy at the party who is confidently assuring you that he is not drunk. Poor Alex. Poor Alex, like, all the time. Then he blows up the plane's engines and teleports away. 
Uh, thankfully, Joseph and Storm respectively get the plane and Cyclops down safely. Now, Alex is later going to turn out to have been infiltrating the Brotherhood, and his and Scott's resolution over this particular incident is seriously one of the most charming moments of this era of X-Men. I'm really looking forward to covering that scene. Yeah, that's not going to happen for a while, though, because first we've got X-Men number 59. It's plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Ralph Macchio, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Art Taber, colored by Joe Rose, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Albert Duchesne. Albert Duchesne is once again only credited as A.D. Come on, Marvel, you're sitting on a name goldmine here. So, before Scott and Alex get any kind of resolution, Scott does what he does when he's having feelings. He fucks off to Alaska. Wait, no, no, he just goes to the movies. Um, he's, he's, he's doing so much better. Like, he used to just, like, leave the continental U.S. at this point. Well, there was that one time where he wandered off to the sushi bar where the coffee go go used to be while in a fugue state. Yeah, but he ended up either in or immediately proximal to Jamaica Bay. No, he's, he's um, gone off to, to the movies. He's specifically gone to see Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And they use actual stills from it in this comic. And I was really curious about the copyright situation, especially given the fairly recent refusal to mention cats by name. So I asked around on Twitter, and I also talked to, to T, my wife, who knows her shit around both transformative works and film, and I found out that basically, um, so the copyright of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was renewed in 1967, so it was definitely under copyright at this point. This probably still technically counts as fair use for a transformative work, but it's also the kind of things publishers are usually scrupulous about getting permission for. Um, per Kurt Busick on Twitter, quote, Marvel Legal was much, much looser back then. A lot of stuff got through on the ah, nobody will notice plan. However, it also turns out that none of that actually applies here. Because while Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the actual movie was under copyright. The studio forgot to copyright the trailer. Which means that if these stills are taken from scenes that appeared in the trailer, they are not protected by that copyright. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, Incidentally... While I'm getting into the weeds, Scott refers to the theater as the Gem Theater, but someone on Twitter actually identified it based on the interior as the Ziegfeld, which closed in 2016. Jeez, first Marvel is abbreviating Albert Duchesne's awesome name, and now they're changing a name like the Ziegfeld to just the Gem? Marvel, what is happening? This is why you went bankrupt. So Scott has apparently been here all day, which... I deeply, deeply respect and identify with as someone who once sat through about 12 straight hours of The Rocketeer. You know, I've never seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but I have seen The Rocketeer, and that's not a bad plan. That's that's such a good movie. Like, it, it's never, ever in theaters. I missed it the first time it was in theaters because I was a tiny wee kid, and it was a local theater had it had a print of it in 35 millimeter and was just playing it for a weekend, and I bought tickets to every showing. <laughs> nice. So, anyway, Jean shows up nearest the end, and they are unspeakably rude to the other one to two people in the theater by not shutting up for a second, even after resolving to stick to telepathy. But it is really sweet. Like, Scott tells Jean about how he used to do this as a kid to, like, just try to wonder what it would be like to be normal, and he feels so guilty for being here when he should be doing other stuff, and she just listens and she just tells him that she's so happy that after all these years together she still gets to learn new things about him and then they kiss and it's this beautiful kiss almost as good as gambit and rogues from legion quest i love them as a couple in this era so much i know we've been down on them as a couple at times like when they'd split up for a while we were fully in favor of that and a little salty about them getting back together in the modern era 
But man, when Scott and Gene are good, they are so good. I mean, they kind of support my my general attitude that my ship is whichever one is being well written. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Gene initially comes to see if Scott wants to talk about the situation with Alex, and Scott does not want to talk about what happened with Alex. He just wants to watch Mr. Smith goes to Washington again, which, again, I deeply respect. This is one of the most Cyclops moments in all Cyclops. In general, this is an issue with a lot of good moments that's not an overall fantastic issue. I feel like that describes a great deal of this in-between era in this part of the 90s. I mean, it's something that's very consistent along... Lobdell's run. Like, he's much, much better at moments than he is at stories. Totally. Meanwhile, at the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning, uh, as currently distinct from the Xavier School, which is at the former Massachusetts Academy, Hercules shows up and immediately beats up Bishop, but it's fine. Everyone's pals. Jeez, last time it was Spider-Man beating up Bishop and now it's Hercules? It's like how Worf on Star Trek would always get beaten up to show how badass the new bad guy was. Spider-Man didn't actually beat up Bishop at all. He just took his gun away. Well, I bet that feels like getting beaten up to Bishop. He loves that gun. Now, Hercules is here partly to check on the X-Men because obviously shit has just gone down and he is a concerned pal. And then Beast has to explain Onslaught to him, which means that I I get X-Men explaining X-Men bullshit twice in two issues. And I am a very, very happy expert right now. (laughs) Yeah. Also, he is trying to get what is left of the band back together, so he's here to recruit his fellow surviving Avenger, Quicksilver. Quicksilver has has come back to the X-Mansion basically to brood. He has lost both his, his ex-wife and his sister to Onslaught, and, and Wolverine does what Wolverine has been doing for the entire 90s, which is lurk in the bushes until someone appears to need sagacious wisdom, then pop out and offer it to them. I gotta give props to the Qbert on this issue— for this beautiful panel. So Logan's in his feral form, and Andy Hubert draws Logan as much more animalistic than Adam does uh, at this point. And Logan's just sort of crouched uh, in this branch high above, but he's all in shadow, and there are these fall leaves all around. You just see his eyes kind of glowing through, and his ripped-up outfit, often in silhouette. And it's just one of the coolest images of Logan I've maybe ever seen. And this, like, issue that doesn't have a whole lot going on in a Wolverine era that a lot of people would rather forget. But it's just such a perfect panel. Yeah, Andy Kubert manages to make noseless weird Wolverine actually look pretty rad. I know, it's great! It's remarkable. Quicksilver is less convinced, and instead of really listening to, to Logan's wisdom from the bushes, goes to start some shit with Joseph, who is in the Xenox chamber. This is, remember, the uh, telepath-proof chamber that Professor Xavier hid in after faking his own death for the first time so that he could take on a race of aliens using the collective love of humanity during the Silver Age. Ah, the Silver Age, I say again. I want to point out that that explanation was not in the outline. That was just off the top of my head because this is the shit my brain is full of now. They were professionals, Jay. What Joseph is doing in the Xenox chamber is studying full body scans of Rogue like a massive goddamn creep. Okay, to be fair, I guess, he's trying to figure out how she can touch people despite the way her powers work. Okay, that does not make it less creepy. Yeah, you're right. Like, damn, son, who raised you? 
And this is after Rogue told Joseph to basically fuck off when he and Gambit were being all immature and fighting over her. And, like, he's still doing this. So T and Pietro have words which conclude with Joseph basically acknowledging that, yeah, Magneto ruined Pietro's life. Then Pietro heads off with Hercules, who tells Pietro to get his shit together. Good old Hercules. He is such a giant goof. Like, he's just jovial all the time, doesn't know his own strength. He's kind of the tick. Yeah, he's kind of the tick. Like, I imagine him basically talking like Patrick Warburton is the tick. Hey, Tick, you remember that conversation we had about how you yell all the time? I do indeed! Anyway, meanwhile, in the Creed campaign, uh, that's Graydon Creed, not like the band playing songs that all sound the same. Sam and Bobby, Bobby Drake, not, not the Bobby you'd normally associate with Sam, continue to spy and tease at secrets that the readers already know about things like Creed's parentage and his association with Bastion. The thing this reader doesn't know is what is up with the panel where Cannonball's in the foreground and Creed's in the background, but it just looks like Cannonball's twice the size of Creed because of the weird perspective. Oh, it is amazing, and it has some of the worst perspective I've ever seen in a comics panel. It's great. I love it. It actually reminds me a lot of the Captain America in Heroes Reborn, number one, that came out around this time, drawn by Rob Liefeld, where there's this conversation where Steve Rogers and some old dude are walking and talking, and the perspective makes it look like Steve Rogers is literally twice as tall as this guy. Very small man. Oh, no, it, that could be, because remember the time when Captain America and Magneto got in a fight over the world's tiniest man? Might be a callback. I mean, I haven't read Heroes Reborn, so maybe it was. Maybe we should give Heroes Reborn more credit if it references that astonishing issue. God, I hope it does. But here's what actually interested me about this bit. None of the big central stuff, but one tiny detail. Because there's this throwaway side character named Carly also working for the campaign, and at one point she uses the phrase, what is, is. And that's an Ascani thing. That totally is. Yeah, the Ascani sisterhood from the future that, that Cable hung out with for, for most of his life. Mm -hmm. So there are rumors, I don't know if these are true, but that they were going to factor in, the Ascani that is, to the upcoming assassination attempt of Graydon Creed. That's going to be, you know, the thing that basically triggers Operation Zero Tolerance uh, and is very much reminiscent of the attempted assassination of Senator Kelly that would have triggered Days of Future Past if it hadn't been stopped by future Kate Pride going back in time. So I don't think this actually goes anywhere. There are so many bits of plot that just don't around here. I mean, I am reminded of uh, Graydon Creed's aide who's a telepath, or was it Senator Kelly's aide who's a telepath? I guess it was Senator Kelly's. Kelly's. Anyway, yeah, point being, uh, that could have been kind of cool, or maybe the story would have been terrible, and we will never know. But I love that little tiny bit of foreshadowing because it's so subtle and, like, if you don't catch it, you don't catch it. But if you know, it's huge. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Pour one out for Carly Ascani. Carly Ascani. I love the idea that her last name is Ascani, that if you're in the Ascani sisterhood, like, you're literally just all sisters and you, your last name is all Ascani. Yep. Yeah. So that's our X-Men check-in for now. But we had a little more room in the episode, so we decided to see what was up in the wide wide world of Wolverine doing too many things at once. And the issue that we decided on was actually Wolverine Annual 1996, which is a story called The Last Ronin and is pretty fun. 
This issue is plotted by Jeff Loeb, with a script by Ralph Macchio, not the one from The Karate Kid, pencils by Ed McGinnis, inks by Nathan Massengill and Norman Lee, colors by Gloria Vasquez, and letters by, you guessed it, Richard Starkings and Comicraft. This is Ed McGinnis's first full-length Marvel issue. Ed is largely known for Deadpool, but I personally remember him from the Avengers vs. X-Men tie-in X-Sanction and some chapters of the Black Vortex that he did. His style is kind of bananas. He's kind of like if, I don't know, if Jack Kirby did a Saturday morning cartoon. Like, there's that same kind of stumpy, very dynamic, very motion-focused, overly emotive style that Kirby does. But, like, with softer lines and features that are a little more exaggerated, like, there are some big chins in this issue. Speaking of the tick, giant chins. You know, we think of the 90s as, like, the era of big muscles, but we've been seeing a lot of chins, a lot of, like, really large chins lately. We have, it's true. I mean, there are large everything else's. Like, Logan's biceps are far bigger than his head much of the time. So, what's Logan up to, anyway? Well, aside from, I don't know, lifting cars, Logan is back in Japan. He is mourning the death of Mariko Yoshida. Mariko is the woman that was almost Logan's wife um, until Mastermind was a real dick about everything and did some mind control. In Wolverine's own series a while back, she died. Matsuo Tsurayaba of The Hand poisoned Mariko with this agonizing blowfish toxin, and she ended up begging Logan to kill her to end her pain, which he reluctantly did. So now he shows up on Matsuo's doorstep periodically and cuts off various pieces of Matsuo every time, which I'm not saying that's a great plan, but but I get it. So yeah, Logan is here being sad, but suddenly, schlicked! Because Logan pops his claws. Yes, that's the sound these days. Remember, everything is gross. Logan smells... Kenyushio Harada. That is the Silver Samurai, a longtime Marvel, mostly Wolverine, somewhat X-Men villain. I'm not sure if this is actually the first time we've seen him in, like, normal person clothes, but it kind of feels like it. Yeah, he's just sort of a dude. He's not so silver or samurai. He's just wearing a fancy biker jacket and jeans and a t-shirt. And, of course, a sword that's on his back. I assume that is the Black Blade of Muramasa that he got in Wolverine Solo series early on. Uh, and it makes sense. Like, if you're Kenny Ushio, you're going to carry a sword everywhere you go because your mutant power is entirely sword-focused. Well, it's not just sword-focused, is it? Isn't it channeled through that specific sword? Uh, no, he was able to do power stuff with other swords before he got this one. It's just that this sword is, like, extra awesome. And also cursed? But Kenny Uchio is rad enough that the curse is not as powerful as he is. The Frogert is also cursed. That's bad. So, the reason Silver Samurai is here is not to pick a fight, as Logan assumes, but to mourn Mariko himself. He's her half-brother, and yeah, they never saw eye-to-eye and often were kind of at war with each other, and yeah, he took over Mariko's criminal empire that she was trying to reform and is distinctly not reforming it, but, you know, still. And yeah, he's not just here to mourn her, he's also here to pick Logan up for a heist. That's right, because another Japanese hero, Sunfire, that's Shiro Yoshida, although Yoshida spelled slightly differently, never figured out why, anyway, he needs a rescue. Now, if you don't recall Sunfire, he is the man who has joined and quit the X-Men more than perhaps any other mutant. 
Yeah, I think he joined and quit like two or three times just in his first X-Men issue in Giant Size X-Men number one. It was great. It was great. Most recently, he quit not being in jail. Yeah, he was uh, incarcerated after his powers flew into overdrive. And I was trying to remember when that happened. I was thinking, was that the legacy virus? We know that that makes people's powers go into overdrive. Was it maybe that weird machine that Fenris was trying to steal in Generation X that also makes mutants' powers go into overdrive? No, this was something entirely different. This instance of a mutant's powers going into overdrive was because Sunfire got hit with Magneto's electromagnetic pulse way back in Fatal Attractions in 1990. And at the time, it seemed like maybe he was killed, but uh, apparently not so much. Apparently, he just went nuclear, kind of literally, and then got put in anti-nuclear prison. Oh, shit. When they en- when they mentioned the EMP, I assumed Onslaught, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, there was that little scene of Sunfire getting hit with the EMP and then just nothing for years. So I'm glad he's okay. I'm also glad that at one point somebody specifies that even though he blew up a large portion of whatever part of Japan he was in, uh, nobody was hurt. So that's nice. Yeah, it was smart of him to explode in an entirely unoccupied industrial area. Well done, Shiro. Anyway, you remember that Bastion guy we've been talking about? Yeah, he, he's around. He's brought his goatee and his pink-accented suit to Japan, and he is talking to various figures in the Japanese government and military. He reminds them about what mutants just caused in New York City with the Onslaught event, and compares it directly to the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the much more recent earthquake in Osaka in 1995. Is it just me, or is one of the generals in this meeting straight up Joseph Stalin? You know you're not wrong, his mustache is like that mustache. Like, not exactly, the corners are a little different, but if you were to turn Joseph Stalin into a caricature, it would just be that guy. His mustache, and his hair, and his outfit. It's very weird. I mean, Joseph Stalin is many was many things, but he was definitely not a Japanese general. Are we entirely certain? I mean, it is the Marvel Universe. I guess things can be different. Uh, but yeah, he's going to be a minor character throughout this issue. Joseph Stalin. I mean, uh, I think General Harito. Yeah, uh, we can assume at least his first name is probably Joseph. Yeah, probably. Good old General Joe. Now, Generals Joe and otherwise are not interested in foreign help, despite um, the case that Bastion makes. And Bastion counters their their claim that they'll take care of their people pretty effectively. Our people? There is no longer such a concept, even in so segregated a society as Japan. There is only Homo sapien and Homo superior. And with a little help, we can survive. That we is ironic, though, because Bastion is not actually human. No, no, he's, he's more of a robo-sapien. But that's his, that's his whole deal. He's all about protecting humanity. He's essentially an evolution of the Sentinel program. But this is clever. The idea that he really sees the world as the only us and them being humans and mutants. And so he figures any other divisions between humans, who cares? They have one common enemy, and it's mutants. He's very progressive in some ways, in ways that lead to horrible, horrible bigotry. I don't know. It's a cool thing to look at, though. It's a cool thing to, like, examine in-groups and out-groups and how those can shift. I can. Yeah, It's certainly something that you see happening in the real world in, in terms of alliances between infusions of apparently at odds hate groups when they have a mutual enemy that they both want to go after. Oh, excellent, excellent point. 
Uh, there's an article I'm thinking of in particular that I'll stick in the the, the links in the visual companion this episode. Oh, nice. But anyway, Bastion's main priority in being here is not to analyze such things, but to keep a giant robot safe from mutants. It's Red Ronin. Jade, do you know about Red Ronin? I do not. Tell me about Red Ronin, Miles. So Red Ronin is a giant robot that was created to fight Godzilla back when Marvel had the rights and was publishing Godzilla comics. Right on. In this comic, the uh, narration or possibly dialogue mentions that Red Ronin was created to fight a time-lost dinosaur because they can't say Godzilla anymore. I wonder if it was Denver the lost dinosaur. Denver the lost dinosaur. He's my friend and a whole lot more. Miles, are, are, are you fucking a dinosaur? No. I mean, not at, not at the moment. Do you seriously not know Denver the lost dinosaur? Or the last dinosaur? One of those. I do not know of either Denver the Lost Dinosaur or Denver the Last Dinosaur. It was a Saturday morning cartoon in, like, maybe the late 80s or the early 90s, and there was this rad dinosaur, and I think maybe he wore a Hawaiian shirt, and he hung out with these kids, and they all had BMX bikes except for one kid who had a skateboard, and uh, he seemed like a lot of fun, and, and I wanted to be friends with him when I was a kid. Okay. Also, man, that theme song has been, like, one of my seven continual thoughts for my entire life. That theme song is is somewhat atypically suggestive for a Saturday morning cartoon. You know, you're you're not wrong. Huh. Anyway, um in the Marvel universe, Red Ronin was built by Stark Industries to fight Godzilla. Um but at this point in continuity it was owned by Fujikawa Electronics in Japan. They actually first appeared in the Marvel 2099 timeline, so having them show up in the present day is kind of cool. Like, oh, this is where they started with a giant goddamn robot. So, is this a giant robot or is it like a mech? Is there is there a human pilot inside? There was. Uh, at this point, there's some discussion by the scientists that they built some AI so it doesn't need a pilot. And all of this discussion takes place over these three pages, which are not exactly a three-page spread, but kind of could be. Basically, it follows the scientists on an elevator that is gradually rising up alongside the enormous Red Ronin, who is deactivated and being stored right now. And so you see, like, first his feet and legs, and then, like, his torso, and then they get to his head. It's really cool. It's so showcased is just the scale of this enormous goddamn robot that also has a samurai helmet. It's an incredibly, incredibly rad effect. Ah, oh, it totally is. So Logan and Silver Samurai suit up to go rescue Sunfire from his prison, which is in a military base, and sure enough, they find him. And I love the outfit that Sunfire is wearing at this point. So his initial outfit was that iconic one from the 70s where he had kind of rising sun lines rising from his kind of belt buckle sigil, like the Japanese flag a little bit. And at this point, it's a similar motif, except it's asymmetrically coming out of this kind of circular machine thingum on one side of his chest. It's a really cool look. Like, it's asymmetry done extremely well. And I like it way better than the last costume we saw him in, which was pretty much just a red bodysuit with random scraps of circuit board stuck at various points, like little bits of armor. This is really cool. This captures the iconic old feel while still feeling 90s. The thing on his chest um, is maybe fist-sized, and it, it really looks like some kind of socket, and it's something that you're going to see on a lot of costumes in the 90s. I know they show up pretty regularly on Havocs as well. That's true. Yeah, they do look like sockets, but, like, I don't know what you would put in there. 
because they're not very deep sockets and the edges are a little bit beveled. So like whatever you put in there would just fall out. Well, like, presumably they, they, they're threaded like you could screw a pipe in. Oh, OK, well, that's handy. I mean, you never know when you might need that. So so what I'm what I'm sort of working up to here is that clearly certain superheroes in the 90s could double as plumbing junctions. Ah, you know, in this economy, it's good to have a backup gig. Havoc's definitely not going to finish his dissertation anytime soon. Ugh, poor Alex. Anyway, Silver Samurai, in the course of this break-in slash breakout, uh, is cutting big circles through giant metal doors with his energized katana like it's a freaking lightsaber. I've been watching a lot of Star Wars cartoons and reading a lot of Star Wars comics, and that is apparently the most common way to get from one place to another in that universe is just to cut a hole in thick metal with a lightsaber. I feel so bad for the various maintenance crews that are out there. Maybe they account for that. Oh, maybe, yeah. It's just built into the budget. Maybe it's like a job security thing. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, one of the reasons that in Oregon you can't pump your own gas because they want to make sure that there are enough jobs available, including for gas station attendants. They don't want people to set themselves on fire who aren't professionals. So, yeah. Right. Like in, in, in Star Warsville, you, you can't use doors. Okay. Well, anyway, Silver Samurai is pretty proud of his ability to do something that usually only Jedi in a different continuity can do. Even a titanium-reinforced door becomes no more than a veil before the power of Silver Samurai. And when he says his own name, Silver Samurai, like it's written in these gleaming silver, thick, black-bordered letters, I love it. I love it when characters say the names of their themselves or other characters, and those names are in the logo of the comic that those characters headline, or sometimes they just make a logo, even if the co- characters don't have their own comic. Yeah, it's it's I, I love it when characters can actually say logos. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking, like, Jay, what would what would our names be like if they could be logos and speech bubbles? Oh, mine would be impeccable Palmer script. OK, no, that scans. I think mine would be like bright red slashed enthusiastically into the word balloon. But like there would be this black fire drop shadow and like maybe some rivets around the edge of the word balloon. It would be super heavy metal. I think it would be that, but with, like, pencil lines, so it was clear that it had been drawn in a notebook by a ninth grader who was trying to recreate the Metallica logo. You know me so well. Sunfire is suspicious of the oft-villainous Silver Samurai lightsaber rescuing him. And then after Logan cuts off Sunfire's inhibitor collar, he describes the power coursing through him in great detail, and I love Silver Samurai's response. Yoshida, please, we are aware of your mutant abilities. Now is not the time. I mean, okay, Samurai, maybe you're aware of Sunfire's abilities, but, like, maybe some of the readers aren't. We haven't seen Sunfire in a long time. Come on, think of them. Be considerate. So once they've got the band together, it's time for part two of the mission, um, which Silver Samurai reveals. They've got to get Red Ronin away from the Japanese government because the Hand are going to try to steal it tonight. Oh, ninjas. They're no good. Logan's not so sure. Again, he doesn't trust Silver Samurai. So he goes to Fujikawa Electronics to confirm and runs into Yukio. Jay, remind us, who's Yukio? Yukio is Wolverine and Storm's mutual ex. She is a self-styled ronin, a master thief, and generally a diehard adventurer and risk-taker. She's great. And McGinnis draws her really well. I'm kind of reminded of how we were describing the way that Spider-Man was drawn in the last issue we talked about. Like, in this, she's just impossibly limber, contorting herself into all sorts of dynamic 
positions as she parkours around. It's it's so good. Also, she is here to steal a giant robot. A giant robot, which, as we have seen, is, like, hundreds of feet tall. That is ambitious, lady, and I respect it. And also currently being pursued by a flock of evil ninjas. Yep. And speaking of, suddenly, ninjas! Yeah, the hand, they're, they're already here, and so it's time for a fight between our heroes and a bunch of ninjas in front of a giant robot. Oh, I like this issue. Unfortunately, the robot's AI does what robot AIs do under these fictional circumstances, which is go, I guess I might as well just rampage through the city. You know, it sounds pretty fun. Everyone needs a hobby. So the heroes change course, and Sunfire blasts his way through the robot to give Logan a way inside. Logan mentions that he knows that you usually have to go inside big robots to shut them down, but usually when he fights Sentinels, he just cuts their heads off or whatever. There's kind of a great art error in connection to this, because uh, Sunfire nominally blasts the hole, but it leaves a hatch that Logan has to move aside to climb in. Sunfire is very precise. He's got great control over his powers now that he hasn't just been hit by an EMP. Now, fortunately, he goes into the robot directly into the part of it that has the labeled big switches for all the important organs. Yeah, there's this part labeled heart with a Japanese character for heart. And so Logan just Wolverines at it and the robot shuts down. Unfortunately, before all that happened, the robot shot its arm off, as all good giant robots can do, to restrain Sunfire against a building and attempt to squish him into said building. So Sunfire's freaking out more and more, and despite what we just said about his powers being under control, yeah, they're they're not particularly. He's about to blow up again, and this time there are a lot of people around, so that would be real bad. Fortunately, Logan, who again jumps out of bushes to give people bits of wisdom before re-disappearing, does the equivalent. He jumps out of a robot um, to talk Sunfire down. And this works pretty well, because this is a Wolverine annual. It's in Wolverine's own series. And the biggest theme at this point in the series, during this feral era, is Logan taking control over the uncontrollable animal within. And that's got a lot of parallels to what Shiro is going through right now. So it's not focused on for too long, but it definitely works thematically for this book. I feel like we should clarify that Sunfire still has a nose. Uh, yes, yes, it's a, a different type of, you know, animalistic, powerful rage. The kind that lets you have a nose. Age of Apocalypse, Sunfire does not have a nose, but that's because he doesn't have a body. Well, he's got a body, just not, like, the outside parts. Mm. So, yeah, everything's okay. The ninjas are, I don't know, I guess the robot killed them all? Unclear. But as everybody leaves, Logan talks to Shiro, who he keeps calling Kid. I always thought of Sunfire as being one of the older X-Men, but I got, I guess not. Or maybe just everyone's kid to Logan. Yeah, no, I did too. Yeah. I mean, maybe Logan just calls everyone who's under like 150 Kid. Does he call Cable Kid? That'd be pretty good. Maybe that's why Cable hated him when they first met up. There are a lot of reasons to hate Wolverine. Yeah, fair. But this isn't one of them because he's very supportive toward Sunfire. And with Professor Xavier, the normal mentor figure that everyone would turn to out of the picture, he suggests that Sunfire go work with James and Heather Hudson of Alpha Flight, the couple that took Logan in when he was wandering animalistic in the woods after the whole Weapon X thing. Because sometimes you need a mentor and sometimes you need a Canadian Shack AU. Yeah, you do. And in fact, uh, 
Sunfire is going to be in the next volume of Alpha Flight. And after that, he and Silver Samurai will both be back in 1998's series Sunfire and Big Hero 6, which the movie was very, very, very loosely based off of. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. No, some, a lot of the same characters are still in it, just like Sunfire and Silver Samurai I don't think are in the movie. I haven't actually seen the movie. I've heard it's good, though. It, it's, it's a fun movie. Um, Sunfire and Silver Samurai are definitely not in it. But what if they were? It would be a very different movie. Anyway, that's that story. There is a backup story called The Golden Temple, which is about Wolverine's kind of ward, Amako. But I feel like we would need so much background for her to talk about this story that maybe we should just do a more Amako-focused uh, episode at some point later. Yeah, we're running a little bit low on time today. I just wanted to talk about giant red robots. And so you did. Meanwhile, you listeners have not just an interest in giant red robots, but questions. A mature speller asks on Tumblr, I just binged through your Onslaught coverage, ooh, brave listener, and something that I kept coming back to was the fact that given the relationship, couldn't the opposite of Onslaught also exist? That is, the combination of Charles and Magneto's best parts. Has comics ever done anything like that, and if not, how would you like to see it done? They have not done that personified, but I would argue that that is what you are seeing with Krakoa. Oh, kind of. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely seen the best brought out in Magneto by Charles' death in Age of Apocalypse and some what-if stories kind of in other directions. But yeah, Xavier's faith in humanity combined with Magneto's assertive drive? God damn. I think it would probably eventually go bad because too much of a good thing never works out. I mean, you remember the, the Phoenix Five in uh, Avengers vs. X-Men. Um, excuse me, we call them the Penis Five here. Right. Piotr, Emma, Namor... Ileana and Scott. Yeah, penis, yeah. Anyway, uh, what would this character look like? Because Onslaught was a big Mecha Magneto. What about this character? Well, clearly he would have Magneto's hair. Okay, that wild white hair that sometimes looks a little Wolverine-y if Bilson Cabbage draws him. Just the, the intense silver foxhood. Dig it. I think Magneto's hair, Xavier's eyebrows. Okay, gotcha. And for an outfit, I don't know, I kind of like a halfway point between Magneto's admittedly excellent costume and the gladiator-ish astral armor that Professor X wears when he fights the Shadow King sometimes. Either way, no helmet and definitely a cape. Oh, I'm so into this. You gotta have a cape. Brandon Morgan asks on Twitter, Okay, I've seen this pop up in my feed, but what's your take on Magneto wielding Mjolnir? I've seen both yes and no answers. No... He couldn't wield it, but he could control it because of the metal, and yes, he could wield it because his convictions are sincere enough. What are your takes? Right. Oh, I love this question. Thor's hammer, of course, can only be lifted, let alone wielded, by the worthy. But also, it's made of metal. Admittedly, a very fancy star metal, but still a metal. Well, the fancy star metal part is at least somewhat circumventable. If I recall correctly, Moon Knight could control it because it's made from part of a moon. What? I haven't read that. That's awesome. That aside, uh, in the Ultimate Universe, Magneto was able to control the electromagnetic field around Mjolnir, and thus could use it even though he wasn't technically holding it. But I don't know, the Ultimate Universe, it's a different universe, and it got really weird with everything involving Magneto. So let's focus on the 616. Let's start with Journey into Mystery number 109 back in the Silver Age, where Magneto and Thor fought, and Magneto was able to stop Mjolnir mid-air, stop it dead, when Thor threw it at him. And later in that issue, though, Thor took away Magneto's magnetism powers with Mjolnir. That was back in the Thor era, and Mjolnir just had different powers, like, every issue, like Thor was freaking Superman or something. So uh, maybe a grain of salt with that one. 
But then there's Supervillain Team Up number 14, where Magneto controls Mjolnir enough to drag Thor away from the fight by magnetically throwing Mjolnir in the opposite direction. So I feel like between those, yes, Magneto could at least move the hammer around somewhat with no problem. But he would just be using it as a physical object, admittedly a very heavy physical object and thus powerful. So I don't think he'd have any like mystical use of the god tempest inside the hammer or anything like that. So what you're saying is it would be a workaround for the idea that only the worthy can lift the hammer, but not that only the worthy can wield the hammer. So kind of rules lawyering it. Uh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, but let's face it. If all you can do is move Mjolnir around in space, you essentially just have a very impressive brick. It's not like Mjolnir at its full power. As for the worthiness part, I would say no. No, I don't think Magneto could wield Mjolnir because he was worthy, even if he could move it around using magnetism. There are exceptions when Mjolnir's enchantment is on the fritz. That's happened recently in Donny Cates' Thor run. But when Mjolnir is working the way it's intended to with that worthiness enchantment, only a very few people have ever been able to lift it. And they've all been, like, exceptionally heroic, and specifically exceptionally heroic in what in ways that Asgard would consider heroic. Like, it's a culturally specific kind of worthiness. You have to be a warrior, you have to protect the innocent, but you do have to be a warrior. And personality-wise, I don't know, I don't think that would work. Like, we have seen the Worthiness Enchantment come and go. Thor and Odin both lost the ability to lift it when they became unworthy for various complicated reasons. So I guess you could argue that Magneto could gain that worthiness, but I still don't think it works. I would argue that you've got to be lawful, good aligned. So even when Magneto is a warrior, even when he's basically on the side of the good guys, he's really not on the side of the law or the system or the establishment. Yeah, yeah, that too. And... Also, like, Magneto is proud. Even when he's at his best, he's proud. And remember, the whole reason that Thor became Donald Blake way back in the Silver Age was because Odin thought he was uh, too full of himself and needed to be more humble. So we know that humility is, like, a necessary quality, at least to some extent, for being considered worthy. If it were more about internal sincerity, the way that, say, Longshot's luck powers work, sure. But it's not— you gotta be worthy according to Asgard. And Magneto? Eh, I don't think so. See, the funny thing is, I agree with you that he wouldn't be worthy to lift the hammer. He wouldn't be found worthy to lift the hammer. But I don't think it can be exactly as Guardian standards, because I feel like Magneto would be really, really on point with all of those. Like, yeah, he's genocidal, but actually Asgard's been historically pretty down with that. And he's specifically genocidal to be the hero of a people. And also, he's got a really sweet cape. Sweet cape is a, is a compelling argument, it's true. But I feel like you gotta be a bit more compassionate toward the downtrodden and a little less exclusionary. Like, yeah, killing frost giants is alright, but, you know, if there was, like, an innocent frost giant, then the only Thor that would kill that frost giant would be the one in actual mythology. Not our Thor, not 616 Thor. And I will definitely defer to you on matters concerning 616 Thor. <laughs> well, it's hypothetical anyway, because I don't think he's ever tried to lift it. Uh, but excellent question. I love thinking about these things. You know who is worthy? Our listeners. And certain levels of support that they give to our podcast to enable us to do what we do come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So here's the angry Claremontian narrator. I don't care what color your hair is, black-haired demon. 
If you and James Sheridan don't knock that shit off right now, there's gonna be hell to pay. And not the metaphorical kind either. Or the kind with one L. Or the sexy kind. Ugh, you know what? I don't even know why I bother. And from here, the mic goes to Havoc, who is definitely not mind-controlled this time. This is the real me, Scott. I've had my mind controlled by Egyptology professors, alien bondage vikings, an evil necklace, and a magic mirror. But this time, brother of mine, this time, this is finally the real Alex Summers. That's right. It was my idea to rip the roof off that airplane, just like it's my idea to have put on this chicken costume while juggling lobsters. I mean, Strawberry Cataclysm suggested it, sure, and they gave me this neat glowing bracelet to wear before they did, but totally my idea. And nobody but me decided to start speaking in falsetto! Trina! I don't even know why you're bringing up that Saul R. brought it up to me! Saul just said that falsetto voices were fun, and that's just plain true. And that spinning spiral disc I was looking at during the conversation? Entirely unrelated. I've never been more myself, Scott! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. And make sure to pop by explainthexmen.com slash equality to find out how you can help us support Equality Florida. Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, I'll be on vacation. But I'll still be here, revisiting the Silver Age with guest expert Max Carlton. 